Okay, welcome to another episode of the Thought Session Podcast. With us today, we have Daniel Holly joining us all the way from the UK. Daniel is a life and performance coach who inspires people to make positive changes in their lives. And he travels all over the world, coaching communities and corporations in the area of diversity and inclusion and social cohesion. And he's also the creator of the Social Cohesion Podcast. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Thank you, Eric. I'm good, man. I'm cool. Are you feeling self-aware and socially cohesive today? I mean, they're, they're, to me, they can be one and the same, but I'm I'm constantly um, self-aware. And it sounds it sounds bad, like a hyper self-awareness, self-consciousness, but it's, it's a constant track. I'm, I'm excited. Okay. And I have no problem conveying that because that's what my format is all about, conveying the positive. And I want listeners to experience that with me. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, this is not the Jimmy Fallon version of anything. So <laughs> this is just this is just real talk. Yeah. And, you know, if they've thought about it, we're talking about it. That's cool. that's where we're going from here. You know, I was doing some background for the session and I and I came across an interesting thought and it was. You know, okay. if we're talking about social cohesion, yeah. that implies a lack of social cohesion. And I said, you know, I'm just going to drop the mic and let him pick it up mm-hmm. at that point. I mean, there are two points that I really want to cover. And yeah, um, one is, you know, the, the fabulous work that you're doing with coaching people and inspiring them to make changes in their lives. And the mm-hmm. other is your work that you're doing with corporations to enhance and in many cases jumpstart their social cohesion efforts, right? What was your upbringing like? I want to know what led you to the point where you said, hey, you know what? I need to try to affect some change here. Did you have challenges or anything that you had to deal with? Oh, man. Okay. Like, Eric, you're going to have to cut me off if I go for too long, because one thing I've tried so hard to do is make this story short. So (laughs) (laughs) um, how was my upbringing? Okay, so I'll start actually with my identifiers. I'm 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 straight. I'm cis. I'm mixed race. I'm male, and I'm six foot four, two hundred and twenty pounds. And I've been told many many times in my life that I'm a very good looking person, right? <laughs> and from that, um, the reason I say all that is I I grew up with a lot of privilege, right? And I mean, even came from a financially comfortable background. My mum and dad both work and they're both in very good jobs. Um, my father's a management consultant and actually now he runs, uh, runs a business uh, that was handed to him. My mum is a lecturer in nursing and head lecturer, I believe. She's actually really in a high place in uh, the medical field, uh, educational-wise. And so, yeah, there's no, there's no hardship there. Where I found difficulty was understanding my, myself. Now, growing up, for me in the UK in the 90s, and I, that's where I'm going to speak from, black was black, white was white. There was no, there was almost no such thing as mixed race. People called it half-caste, which was problematic of itself, and I don't need to go into that. But 
that wasn't an established identity at the time. It was either you're black or white, but being mixed race meant that you were both and neither. So my difficulty was trying to fit in to that as as you do when you're growing up, as, you know, certainly as your teenage years. Then it was, and I grew up predominantly around white people. In fact, pretty much exclusively around white people. So I got to hear black history taught from a white perspective. I don't think I need to speak on the problems with that. So I then started to perpetuate the negative stereotypes and what white people expected of black people. And that really hurt because it went completely against who I already had an inkling of who I was. But the problem was my conditioning was so strong because I was a tall, I've been six foot four since I was like 13 years old. So I'm six foot four, basically black, because again, back then, if you're not white, you're black. That was it. Um, Well, you know, if you're African, Jamaican, et cetera, et cetera, I'm, I'm Jamaican. So so yeah, if you weren't white, you were black. That's it. Um, the one drop rule. And so I was being held to the expectation of being a large black guy. I was the large black guy, the one who would be the one who like, oh, don't let don't let Dan come for you, and you better watch out if Dan's coming at you. But I was a teddy bear. I, I was actually a, a, in theatre. I was a, I was a, a singer performer. I was sensitive as hell. You know, I wasn't. I was the emotional one. I wouldn't hurt a fly. I was a teddy bear. I'd rather cuddle you than than slap you. That was my whole demeanour. So, wow. so so you're used to you know acting and playing the part so to speak just a few I was very good at playing the part Eric I was I was great at playing the part <laughs> Well it's not a good thing because of course that means I wasn't playing me I wasn't being myself So so that was that and then working on myself so and and it, so many different things like I wasn't being a man even my own, my own girlfriends growing up would be like you're such a woman and it would only hurt because growing up I never had this idea of being a man or being a woman being instilled to me as any form of meaning. Race had had a, had a role to play constantly, but sex and gender was not something I ever really had a vocabulary in. Mm. So when people would say, oh, you're such a woman or you're such a typical man, I, I would just kind of be like, I don't even know what that means. But it would upset me because all I was doing was being Dan. That's all mm. I knew I was doing. I was just being me. So I didn't get it. And if I got mad or upset, I wasn't allowed that emotion. I had to. I had to be. Oh, Dan's getting out like angry. Black Dan, like oh, you go. Oh, or uh, any, anything like that. So it was just a constant mess around. So that was one element of what grew me into understanding um, about the importance of identity and allowing people to literally be and le- and letting them be, so they could understand exactly as you mentioned what it what it meant to come to that point which was poignant for me when I reached this point of self-awareness, because I would speak out a lot about um, race. I was very pro-black and, you know, talking about the challenges that black people face and so on. And then someone turned around, it's on Facebook, someone turned around and was like, you know, it's amazing you talk about all this stuff about race, Dan, but you do realize you're quite sexist. It's kind of a little bit hypocritical that you would talk about all this stuff about race, but you're actually quite a sexist person. And I'm so grateful that, that they said that, but also... I'm grateful that I had the faculty to be able to take that and look at it and go, hang on a second. Because I had respect for the person who said this to me, right? And I was like, wait a minute, is that right? Could that be true? And I I spoke to my family. I spoke to my mum, my sister. I spoke to my colleagues, basically the women I knew and the ones that knew me. And I said to them, like, am I sexist? Like, do I come across as sexist to you? And unanimously, it was pretty much like, yeah. And some of them would say a little bit more. They'd be like, well, yeah, of course, like you're a guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Some of them would just be like, yeah, you, you do. You, uh, and, and I think the people closest to me would basically say, 
you are sexist, but you have been taught this sexism. And all of that came together for me to start recognizing that privilege of, of man. And this was actually the first point where I got to have a vocabulary and what it meant to be a man. And, and, and it meant being privileged, which I know is very trite, right? That's not it. And I'm still building on that. But ultimately, I'm still not really going to subscribe to either what it means to be a man or a woman. I find them redundant, just wholly, completely. Um, but but um, I, I agree. I mean, we tend to create these buckets the categories of emotions, right? And mm. if you have this set of emotions, oh, you're just oh. feminine. And I've seen this with people um, that, are, that are close to me, and, and I've been guilty of this. Uh, oh, man, man up. You know, what does yeah, that yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. And so it made me re- rethink yeah. the language and the vocabulary Absolutely. and the conditions in which that language is generated, right? So mm. uh, that's, that's fascinating that you would come to terms with that. I'm curious to know what are some of your thoughts. Um, I've not been in the UK. I grew up in Chicago, and um, I spent a lot of time in the South as well. And mm-hmm. um, I, I only have those perspectives. But have you noticed any significant differences between these issues in the UK versus in the US? <sighs> significant, no. And actually, I said this on a podcast interview recently. In terms of uh, this is <laughs> this is hard to say. In terms of the relationship between the UK and the US, the UK is only different in that it so far, at least politically, is behind. It's it's running, it's almost running in the tracks of what the US is doing, but it's just doing it a little bit later. Right. So I can give examples. Uh, the Trump election, almost blow for blow, exactly the same thing happened here. In terms of even protests going on in the US right now with regards to coronavirus, we are not having protests, but we have people who are vandalizing uh, and committing arson on 5G towers because they believe that coronavirus is a hoax. And there's other things that are very much parallel. Um, and this is what I'm seeing. And it's ironic because I've, I also saw years, two years ago, three years ago, loads of people saying, oh, you know, we don't want to be like the US and their race. Let's not talk about race because we don't want to be like the US and their race politics and da, da, da. And all I was thinking was the more people say this, the more likely it's going to happen. And it happened. We got to it. It was broadcast on the news where there was this battle. We have a prime minister who was elected in who said sexist, xenophobic, racist things openly, like on, on the media and radio, TV everywhere. But his rival in the political race... Um, was believed to have said something anti-Semitic, right? But but they, they, they went nuts over it. They're like, oh, they're anti-Semite, anti-Semite, anti-Semite. And it was literally said in a news report, two people were talking and one person said, oh, but this prime minister right now is a xenophobe, he's racist, he's sexist, and da-da-da. And the reporter actually said, well, he's not an anti-Semite though, is he? As if to say, he might be all those things, but he ain't this. And that's obviously the, the pinnacle, the worst thing to be. So never mind that he's racist. And that's that's where we were in the climate. That's where we got to. And I was like, it's funny how we didn't want to talk about these things. But now we're in this mess where this is what's happened. This is the state of play now, um, where apparently one sort of ism is worse than the other. And, and the, you know, there's a hierarchy of things. And of course, all the time we're saying there's no such thing as the oppression Olympics. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's, it's just like, oh, God's sake. So, so really, I would say there are many different standings of identity politics in different places. And I think, I think actually the sex and gender one is the biggest one. 
And in my opinion, that means it's the largest problem. The more definitions and the closer we clutch our pearls to what it means to being a man and a woman, the the stronger the differences that we're going to face. And I think I will actually point to this. Uh, This is a thought I had recently. Um, When it comes to trans people, I genuinely think that if we didn't have the gender constructs in place that we have about what it means to be a man and woman, being transgender would not be a thing. It wouldn't be a problem. Not be a thing as in people wouldn't be transgender. I'm saying they still would be. There wouldn't be a problem about it. We would not worry about it. Also, if we stopped talking about men and women like we were different species, like we were so different, then the fact that a man wants to become a woman and does, again, would not be a big deal because we'd be like, well, not much is actually fundamentally changing about that person. They're still them at the core of their being. They're still their person. Yes, some things have changed, but it might be the same as the way a person would change if they changed jobs where they work outside in a field on heavy machinery to moving indoors to working in an office space in a cubicle. Some things will change, but fundamentally who they are will not change because they're going to be that same person at the very core of themselves. So I think that moving around the world, that's one thing that I've seen held very, very strong universally and something that I have just constantly just been so misunderstood about because I'm like, I don't see the fuss about wanting to be a man so desperately. I really don't. I don't, I don't know what, what's the glory right. in it, man. Like, I don't, I don't get it. You know, so it's interesting that you um, bring those points to light because I think we, we could definitely use yet one more label to put on another restroom door. I, I think that is you know the most ridiculous thing. I mean, it, the, the, whatever sign on the, is on the restroom door should have something to do with the function, not the person performing mm-hmm. it. It is ridiculous. But you've seen these things, and I think this brings home the whole point you were making about identity. The identity is what helped you obtain that self-awareness. What actually was your turning point that said, hey, you know what? I need to start helping other people with the concept of self-awareness so that they can make positive changes in their lives. So, okay, thank you. Yeah, let's bring it back. <laughs> I told you, man, I'd talk forever. Um, so <laughs> no, no. And, and I, I, to me, there's there's no such thing as tangents, man, because I think every thought is critical. Every thought is important. The fact that you are thinking is what I want. I want to inspire mm. the thought process. Mm. What did it for you? I mean, what... what, what what provokes you to say, hey, look, I got to help people with this? Do you know, th- th- there are a number of things. And I can only bring it down to this quote that I think became quite the driving force for me. Well, two quotes, actually. One was, nobody's free until we're all free. Hmm. Nobody is free until we are all free. And I know that that, that um, had a bit more of a standing. And I could see people consuming that quote in more of a standing around black people and, and the history that black people have globally, globally, right? Right. So they can put it in that context. But I was like, yo, nobody is free until we are all free. We need to all be free. And we also need to be free of our, not, not just our societal things, our cultural things, but our individual things. That's, that's it. Like we, we can't just, we can't just look at, you know, once, once the peace is made between white people and black people in that history, then everyone will be cool. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Because the intersectionality speaks to that immediately. I could say right now that there's a lot of work that black people need to do in regards to the levels of homophobia that is perpetuated through the stereotypical behavior of um, a black individual, of a black identity, right? 
again, right. the, the pearl clutching of what it means to be a man and a woman, which again, I, I, I recognize is a, a commonality in a stereotypical black identity, right? That's another thing that I think we need to work on that. And I think that speaks to my turning point being, I don't want to just talk about um, liberation in a contrite or, or trite way. I want to discuss the full, all-encompassing, comprehensive nature of freedom for every single individual, which requires looking at our own personal issues. Like you said, and exactly like I relate to, I had to look at myself and go, damn, what is going on with me that I can't seem to just let some shit go? What is going on with me that I, 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 I need to have this friction in my life? Because that was another thing I questioned. Why, why do I watch people welcome problems into their life? And of course, every time we have those questions, we could ask ourselves that question. Why do I do it? What's that accountability in it? So I can at least, if, if not for them, for me, because I can't, I can't sit around waiting for them to change. They might never change, but what can I do? And that's where I started to look at my privilege and go, I'm, I can't do anything about my privilege. I'm not, gonna, I'm not about to make myself a less attractive person. I'm not about to change my <laughs> accent. There's actually a bias. And this is another thing, me being British and having the accent and, and um, the enunciation that I have is a privilege because people naturally are going to trust me more than they would if, let's say, I did speak with a different accent, let's say even Birmingham, which is a city I used to live in. Mm. Apparently, there's a bias that suggests that if you have a Birmingham accent, automatically people think you're less smart, whereas there's no grounds of, of logic for that, really. Wow. Right? Exactly. Even my accent has a privilege. So I'm like out here going, okay, so I'll tell you what, what can I do? What can I do? And for me to do that effectively, what is the bullshit that I need to get rid of off my shoulders so that I can make that work? So actually the first couple of years was me looking at myself. I went to therapy. I went to multiple therapists um, to, to, to kind of look at myself. And I did a lot of kind of self-awareness, which, like you said, is a process of building new levels of awareness of yourself until you reach a point where you're basically like, yo, I'm always going to have problems. <laughs> I'm never going to be perfect. But again, I know how to handle every problem that comes my way. I'll be all right. And continue to push, um, continue to push the joy that I truly experience of not only being able to be myself, but feeling free from the shackles of other people's expectations on how I am supposed to be and how liberating that is every single moment. So the reason I say I'm constantly self-aware is that I'm always tracking the moments where I could give myself a little pat on the back. I could give myself a little support. I could give myself, you know, a little bit of patience or I could be a little bit harder on myself. And constantly you have this relationship with me where I'm like, you know, I'm my best friend. I'm going to look after me. I'm going to make sure that my mental health is in check so that I can make sure that I'm putting out the best and being the best for people in my personal space, my professional space and my romantic space. I was going to ask if you had a life coach yourself, but it sounds like you've become a life coach for yourself. <laughs> and, and I think that's great because you, you're, it's like you are able to monitor those signs and those external factors or maybe internal in some cases, mm -hmm. right, that could potentially take you back there. And, uh, and and you mentioned something, you know, just kind of dealing with other people, right? To me, you have to appreciate yourself. But I think we what we're missing mm -hmm. is a fundamental respect and appreciation 
for other people, right? I don't need to figure out what label I need to put you in just to say, hey, hey, what's up, man? Where are you from? Oh, that's cool. You know, I, I could literally hate that place, but I think it's cool that you are from a different place right now and we're mm. sharing the same space in the same thought session, if you will, right? So yeah. I, I have just learned to appreciate what other people have to offer you because you never know before you even open their book, you know, hey, what what is the purpose of my interacting with this person right now? What led us to this intersection? And I found more often than not that people can contribute so much either to your um, well-being, your self-awareness, or sometimes you're there to help them and and you're learning how to be a coach. But I think it's it's the point that you made. We until we are all free, none of us are free. I mm. think also we have to want people to be free. Right. It's one thing to be equal, but are you okay with someone else having as much as you have? There's a couple of things I really, really need to say in response to what you said there. Um, Because actually, first of all, there was a second quote um, that I stand behind, which is by Walt Whitman, which goes, of course, I contradict myself. I am large. I have multitudes. Now, that, of course, speaks to the absolute complexity and depth of human character and really speaks to the idea that we can't be holding on to this element that we are just this simple set of labels and identifiers. Like that's all we are, right? Because we're more than that. And that that I really hold on to as well. I think that ties nicely to we're, we're not free until everyone is free. The second part is, you said, <laughs> do I have a life coach? Not right now, but a lot of my development has been down to both life coaches and therapists. And I'm not saying this because I'm a coach myself. I'm trying to sell my wares or whatever. No, 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 no. There are things that I come across that I cannot coach myself on because every person has a blind spot. And I don't think you necessarily would need to hire a coach for that, but I think it does require someone else to come in and show a mirror to you so that you can really see how you're showing up. I can't be conscious of every single thing I do. And so where's another person, never mind coach, in fact, where another person come in and help is where they can show you your blind spots. And so um, I say, like, you can coach yourself, but there's absolutely limitations to that. So I don't want to make people think they can go out there and be like, oh, I've got myself covered. I don't need help from anyone. We always would, would benefit from assistance from another person, mother, father, sister, brother, friend, um, colleague, coach, whatever, therapist, whatever. I just want to make that clear because I don't want to I don't want to get it twisted and, and get people thinking that they can just look after themselves and they'll be fine. And I think you have to be open. You have to realize that, hey, I'm in a situation Mm. and Mm -hmm. and I don't know that it's totally healthy for me. And I want to do something differently because I want to create a different outcome. And man, that that sounds in in 10 seconds, that sounds very simple, but man, it can take five, 10 years. And I'm not, I'm, trust me, I, I was a technical IT major. I was not a psychology major at all but man these are some things that i've discovered and Mm. i think it's amazing when um you you come across those folks that can help you identify things that are currently in your blind spot right and it's Mm -hmm. like whoa i didn't even know that was there and and if we get to that point where we truly want each other to be free as you as you mentioned and and we're truly respecting each other Mm. i can see your blind spot and and i trust that you are seeing mine right Mm -hmm. so um, what what happens if 
that was the scenario, if that was the landscape where, you know, we're spending more time trusting and relying and helping each other, I can only imagine um, how differently things would be, right? I love this question. Thank you. Because this is this is the basis. This is the in fact, yeah, this is the question I want to be asked now. When people ask me what I want to talk about on the podcast, I, I'm going to tell them this question. <laughs> Don't get asked. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, so here's the thing. First of all, it's a mess. It's a mess because the the thing is, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, I think people jump to this conclusion that basically everything's going to be perfect. Like we ain't going to fall out and people are going to, you know, constantly fall in love with everything. And, you know, everything's going to be wonderful. We'll all be skipping through the streets with our perfect soy milk lattes. And, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, 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 not at all. Because a fundamental element of being human is challenge, right? But mm. the fundamental human element of being a mature, responsible, self-aware human is taking on challenges in healthy ways, right? Like my partner, I'll say this now, I wrote a list of what I wanted my partner to be um, last year, year and a half ago. It was summer 2018. I wrote a list. I was like, I want them to be these, these, these things, right? Now, I'll tell you now, I said I wanted them to have their own money because actually, I'll be honest, I wasn't in a position at the time to be the financial um support for the relationship so i was like i need a woman who has their own money mm. uh, i need a woman who's self-aware who knows how to who knows how to hold themselves accountable because i'm not gonna i don't want to be in a relationship where i'm carrying the weight of another person's trauma that they're not willing to look at um i want a woman who's ambitious i want a woman who works hard for what she does and has somewhere she wants to go um i want a woman who's got a sense of humor and a woman who's, who's highly sexual. Now, this sounds like, you know, I'm basically creating this perfect person. That's exactly what I was doing. I got to a place where I understood what I wanted and what I needed. Because I, 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 I needed to have a partner who would rub off on me as much as I would rub off on them in regards to their ambition, their work mm. ethic, the way they go about things, right? Um, to someone to inspire me as much as I inspire them. And my friends even said, like, dude, do you realize that's ridiculous? Like, you basically created a person who might not exist. And I was like, I don't care. This is the kind of person that I want. I didn't have measurements on what they looked like. Um, but actually, and I, I only say this, this might sound twisted in regards <laughs> to my experience, only because all of my partners up until this point have been white. I said, I, I just didn't want a white girlfriend anymore. And, and, mm. um, and it was kind of trying to diversify the pool a little bit because honestly... I just thought, yeah, I, I, I wanted a bit more seasoning. But that wasn't on the list. That was not on the list. Okay. It's like, it must be. It was just a preference. Um, and then, I'm not joking, like a month later, I post on Instagram a silly video. It was like a dance challenge or something in a ridiculous onesie. And I get a message from a person who I already knew but never spoke to. Um, and, yeah, we just got talking. And slowly, as we got talking... I was like, this. in today's climate, she was able to buy her own house. She is one of the youngest women of color to be at the status level she's at in terms of her work. Mm. Uh, and she's still growing. Unapologetically, she's like, I'm going for the ivory tower. I don't care. <laughs> That's what I'm going for. Yeah, yeah. When, I, when I met her, she was gymming five times a week, Pilates and yoga once a week each. Um she was working six days a week. Like she was on it. She was on one. And mm. I was, I was just in awe. I was in awe. 
And uh, yeah, and she was half Asian, half half uh, British. Interesting. Is was <laughs> is. <laughs> and, and I was just like, how in the hell have I asked for the ideal woman that I want? And she rolls up in a month. What is that? Now, I say all this to say we have fallen out multiple times in the 18 months we've been together. Fallen out multiple times, right? Hmm. But the way that we have those arguments and the way that we have those disagreements, we have, we've only raised our voices once, and that was early on in the relationship, and we established from that point that we will never do that again. Never, hmm. right? Mm. We have had days where we don't talk to each other and it's awkward because it's like that silence thing. We know we don't want to be quiet. We know we want to say something. We don't know what the right thing to say is, right? But both of us are conscious enough to know that what we're trying to do is we are trying to get back together. We are trying to reunite. We are both aware that the problem is not the other person in the relationship. The problem is the problem that the relationship is having. So we're both looking at our own ways on how to tackle it. That means that we have never not once verbally abused each other. We've not called each other any sort of name. We have not once physically assaulted each other, which I know is like a low bar, but unfortunately it's not really that lower bar when you hear about all the stories out there. It happens. We have not committed any form of serious psychological abuse on each other. We have not once put blackmailed each other. The trust is there implicitly. Like I, I, she knows the passcode to everything. Right, I know the passcode to everything. Do we snoop? Of course we don't, because why do we need to? What's the point? What are we looking for? <laughs> right, nothing. But we still fight. We still have, our, and there's growing pains as well. Um, so yeah, she was incredibly hardworking when I met. And one of the things that I had to ask her about four months in was, "Do you have time for a boyfriend right now?" I really had to ask her, "Do you have time for a partner right now?" Because it got to a place where she was working and in, in, in so much that it kind of felt like, yeah, there wasn't time. But again. That, so that that's a situation in which you've got two people who are self-aware, conscious, socially conscious, you know, really doing the work, both gone to therapy, both had a form of coaching in their life and still have difficulty. But it's the way that that difficulty is handled that determines how much stronger the relationship becomes, how much stronger the individual becomes and how the relationship can progress. Now, I'm going to translate this directly into a corporate perspective so we really understand. Going to a corporate scenario, the idea that conflict slows performance is a fallacy, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that if you have teams that, like, okay, yeah, if you have a team that work together really, really well, then sure, you're going to perform, no doubt. Everyone's going in the same direction. It works. It's great. And you can put the, you can put this in any context at all, and it applies. If you have a group of people who are all the same, all have the same ideas, all have the same goal, you know, good, great. Let's all go. Let's all get there. Fantastic. But business is about growth. People are about growth. Everything is about growth, right? Development, evolution. So effectively, that growth is going to stagnate because you've got a bunch of people with the same ideas, same thoughts, same background, same things, which means where is the new thing? Where's the innovation? Where's the creativity? Where's the imagination? Outside of that silo of collective groupthink, Mm. right? Right. So, so if you and I think this is what businesses are so scared of. They're scared of bringing in someone new, and I really mean new with stars lying around it that sparkles, um, <laughs> because they fear that it brings conflict, and conflict is bad. We don't want arguments in the workplace because people will be afraid and yada yada. No, you want conflict in your workplace, but you want healthy 
healthy conflict in your workplace. You want someone in your workplace to feel safe and comfortable enough to speak up and go, do you know what? Actually, I don't agree with this. And this is why. And people would be like, that's an interesting point. Let's, let's maybe either develop on that or see if there's something that can work in that area, right? Statistically, it's been proven that healthy arguments are better for company performance than blind agreement and conforming. You know, when you say you have to have that safe space, this is what I've noticed. I've spent some time in the corporate sector and I've seen not only the problem, but, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of silence. And I'm wondering, do they not see the problem or are they just okay with the problem? Whatever the problem is, whether it's lack of diversity, inclusion. And I'm so uncomfortable with those terms because I think it's like, okay, if I check these boxes, we've done enough. Uh, No, no, not necessarily. You know, cohesion means that it's sticking, right? You know, it's it's not just an invitation to the party. It's like, I'm on the permanent invite list, right? How do you address this, this set of topics in your speaking engagements? Yes, this is it. So through through doing the odd talk here and there, which I, I do say at the talk, I'm like, be careful now because you could be falling into the trap that I'm speaking to you on, right? They think that they can bring an expert in for one talk and then they're like, right, we had this guy in, so we're fine, we're covered. If anyone claims any kind of discriminatory behavior, we had Dan in to talk about it. I call them out on this and I say it in the talk. I'm like, this doesn't cover you. <laughs> Don't think think that me being here means that you're set and covered. This is not the whole education. This is an overview. There's actually so much I want to say, because what you just said about diversity inclusion is exactly why I don't call it that. Mm. Exactly why. Um, Diversity was defined to me as a way of basically othering. And and inclusion, the way I saw inclusion being used was, we we are including you in this. We're assuming you want to be included in this. We're including you in this, but we're not changing what this is. Like you say, inclusion is an invite to a party that not necessarily everyone wants to show up to. But the assumption is everyone wants to show up to that party. But if we're talking about the fundamentals, changing systems here, systematic changes, then actually we need to change what what is being what the inclusive thing is. We need to change the party. But if that's if that's the story that's being told, then inclusion doesn't really work so well because going back to what you said about people not knowing the problem or not wanting to change the problem, it's actually both at the same time. It's a beautiful cognitive dissonance to be able to play ignorant willfully, meaning they're aware of the problem, but they're choosing not to see it. And so that's what I mean. It's not that they don't know. It's the fact that they are willingly not wanting to take part. And that, that I mean, I'm not even going to point a finger because then that is also a very common, very regular human behavior right? Because we can ask questions. Why do we smoke if we know it's bad? Why do we drink alcohol in excess if we know it's not going to do us any good, right? Why do we stay up late to watch a TV show if we know we shouldn't? Why do we sit on the couch and binge watch a whole load of Netflix shows when we know it's bad for us? We do all these things. Um, and I, I'll be careful. Like I'm not judging people for any of these things. Sometimes we need to do those things, right? But I'm, I'm only saying sometimes we make bad decisions because A, we don't actually know how to make a better decision. And B, the comfort of our discomfort is more comfortable than the discomfort of our new comfort. Do you think that this concept of 
social cohesion and the the ills that it would address is it something that exists only in the corporate structure or is it a reflection of the overall social structure uh, it's 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 ingrained throughout i mean the way that i look at it we're looking at something i mean look at race relations and actually you can even you can even look at gender relations you can look at mental health relations it is it's a global thing that it exists in and amongst all of us in every facet. It's not just a professional thing. The reason I do my work the way that I do it is because there are businesses I'm aware that actually already do this. They don't, they don't realize they're being socially cohesive, but they are because they have made their culture to be that from the beginning. And they'll say it openly. We don't have a diversity inclusion strategy. We don't have a, you know, a year where we decide to focus on minority groups or underrepresented groups in our business. We make it what we do all the time. So it's not a strategy. It's what we do. And that's exactly what I speak to. And I think when those companies are able to perform the way they do, it sets an example. Hey, instead of trying to create a new product and making that your focus or trying to reach out to a new market, which is what your focus is, how about just trying to change what happens inside the business and seeing how that changes performance? Because then what could be an offset of that is that because of the new people you have in your business and the new culture and change, you actually naturally evolve into a greater reach. You're actually able to hit more areas and you're just able to operate better. So maybe you could actually just earn income or a greater income simply from what's left on the table from the lack of culture change that's taking place in your business. You wouldn't have to grow at all, right? So so that that can take place. But the reason I do that is because, yeah, I want businesses to be the forefront and really set the tone of we're going to grow as a company and we're going to do it being socially cohesive to set the tone for other businesses. Because ultimately, it's about getting people into work. And there's an increase now of people wanting to work in purpose-based companies, companies that mean something, right? Mm-hmm. Where their culture is about having um, having an actual purpose and a meaning, not just about earning money. There's, that's a growing thing. But at the same time, if that's the, the, the case, then company cultures need to evolve and change to adapt to that instead of just thinking we need to hire new talent. They need to look at, do I want to be the kind of company that, that um, uh, attracts these people in, Right. Then on the other side of that, the reason I coach one-to-one, this is what I do on the podcast. The reason I coach people one-to-one is, first of all, I mentioned all my privilege at the beginning because what I what I started off doing was I wanted to start off talking and being an advocate for human rights and for people everywhere, right? But one thing that brought me to a place of friction was that I didn't want to be another character, like basically another white person speaking out for black people. Mm. I recognize that I'm light skin. Um, again, you know, I've got the accent and the look, I've got all the stuff, right? So what I didn't want to be was just another privileged person speaking on behalf of people who were underrepresented who already had their spokespeople ready to go. This speaks to an element of the number of, of black women out there who have done and are doing incredible work, incredible work in this area. And it's funny how when you look at DNI experts, a lot of them I've noticed the more popular and famous ones are not black women. Hmm. And yet they are they are doing some some of the finest work. And it's almost like they become the kind of underspoken, silent foundation builders for other people to stand on to then project themselves into the world. 
And I thought, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be another person who climbs up on the work of the people who are underrepresented, who are often unheard, to then go and do the same work and basically even and, and, and use their words that they have studied to find and then go do that. So I didn't want to do that. What I thought I would do instead was, right, what are my skill set? I'm a coach. That's what I love doing. That's what I want to do. What if my demographic was exclusively and only people who had businesses or help, didn't even have businesses, but just had a clear cut value base that there is room on this earth for every single identity and human being, irrespective of anything. What if, what if I only empowered the people who worked for equality and equity for every person on this planet? So that by extension, I'm actually the silent one in the background and I'm coaching these people and empowering these people to make themselves more impactful in their space. One of the questions that I see throughout your content, it's what can people achieve if they were at their best? Mm. You know, and, and I'm like, wow, you know, if you get rid of the distractions and all of the the crap, for lack of a better word, around just be in a workplace, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. How much more effective or productive could I be, right? <laughs> it's, it's a novel concept, but man, do you understand what I have to go through being a person of color to sit in this conference room, just to mm-hmm. get to this conference room right now, mm-hmm. um, and, and versus what someone to my left or my right, you know, is dealing with and, and or doesn't even have to consider. I have to watch everything, right? And and people think just because I'm there that we're dealing with the same thing. No, not necessarily. But what, I, what what disturbs me is nobody tends to ask. They, they say, well, Dan, if you're here, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, you're good. Mm-hmm. But you never asked that question. You never checked on me. And, and that's why I think it's a beautiful thing when you can put those monitoring systems or mechanism, if you will, in place where you can check on yourself. And that's what I meant by it sounds like you have some of your own life coaching <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Systems, yeah. systems in place where you can level set and check, you know, where's the state of mind within self? And I think that's good. I, I know you don't necessarily get to that point on your own, mm-hmm. you know, but you got there, right? And I think yeah. it's, 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 it's beautiful that you're sharing these techniques with other people because I think you can change the world oneself at a time. And if you're Helping someone become a better person, a better self, and more aware, I, I think that is just a phenomenal thing. I, I, I really find it fascinating that you're able to reach and connect one-on-one with so many people and help them identify changes that need to be made within their lives and help them get to that next level of self-awareness and accomplishment and fulfillment. Is this something that you dive deeper in within your own podcast and how can we find those resources? So what uh, what happens with the podcast is at first it was inviting experts on to talk about certain uh, subjects. And it was taboo subjects because I was aware that, just like you said, if we are to become more productive in ourselves and get more from our life, we really need to be able to broaden our perspective on what is available to us already and what we can start doing straight away. So I have an expert coming on, for example, to talk about sex and the benefits of experiencing the kind of pleasure that we personally want to experience. I mean, I could talk forever about that alone, but the 
really just going through taboo subject like for example even how to talk to children how to be with children and raise children that was another episode um there was another one about sustainability because social cohesion is as much an environmental thing as it is a social thing because uh, for me i i do feel like the very nature of you and i having this conversation in the state of play we're in now um under quarantine global pandemic and the ease at which it spread which when you think about it all we had to do was wash our hands wash (laughs) that's all we had to do it sends a message really that this became a global pandemic when all we really needed to do was to cover our mouths when we sneeze, wash our hands. That's it. I mean, it's a global pandemic. That that to me, I, and I say this honestly, not with judgment, but with, um, with an awareness that I hope to bring to the listener, that is the state of play with how we are treating ourselves right now. That's where we're at. And I think if we're treating ourselves like that, it's no wonder that we litter. It's no wonder that we don't care much for how much of a carbon uh, footprint we have. It, it, it makes sense that we don't care much for what, whether or not we're recycling. And I, I think, you know, funny enough, this, this, this was a real thing. I actually saw this. I think, um, I believe it was in Australia, but I wouldn't be surprised if this was anywhere else. Men recycle less than women because it's perceived to be gay. And this was actually a study that was done and it works. I'm not joking. This is genuinely a thing. You can Google it. And this again comes back to this whole conversation I had about the men and women. I was just like, what? This makes no, this is ridiculous. But anyway, anyway, I thought wow. I'd just shoehorn that in there. <laughs> this is a reflection on how we're treating the planet. And at the same time, I want to say, this is Mother Nature having a chat with us right now. This is Mother Nature literally saying, yo, all of you are grounded. Okay? You're grounded <laughs> because I can't trust you out there. You, you, don't, you don't seem to understand how respect yourselves on this planet. So you're grounded. Everyone stay inside for months, all right? And when you're ready to come outside, you come outside. But I swear to God, you come outside and you mess around with this again, I'm going to send another tsunami. I'm going to send another hurricane. I'm going to send someone else. And trust me, some of y'all won't survive that either. So please. <laughs> and no life coach on the planet can help you. Right? <laughs> no life coach. I can't help you with this. Like, literally. So... So I, I think it, 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 one thing, one message that I do hear from this is that we, we're, not, we're not respecting ourselves and our environment enough. So I had a sustainability expert come on. So I, I had these conversations and what, <laughs> what I found, honestly, was that it wasn't fueling me. I wasn't excited or as excited about the episodes as I felt I should be. I know I had people come on talk about mental health, trauma, how we're all traumatized to some degree. There was stuff about intergenerational trauma and it was great, but I wasn't feeling that I was giving the podcast I really wanted to give, even though I enjoyed the conversations, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I changed it and I thought to myself, what, what's a really good podcast I could do? And one thing I became aware of was that there is not enough example of what a coaching conversation can look like to the general public. There's not enough of what a coaching conversation feels like to the general public. How can someone buy into any form of coaching if they don't know what it is? And so I decided to coach people on the podcast. Now, I asked them three questions. I do, I do kind of a screening process before I coach them. So if anyone approaches me, which is more often what happens, if anyone approaches me, I'll go, cool, let's have a conversation. I ask them these three questions. And these three questions, I keep a secret on purpose. Um... To, to see where their minds and values are at. It's a kind of a value check. 
Now, if their values are aligned and they are someone I want to coach, then we go ahead with the episode and I coach them. And I, I they can co- they can be coached on anything, right? There's no point in me coaching them on a topic that I pick because that might not be what they want to work on or need to work on. So they literally get to pick what they want to look at. So every every episode you hear, they brought that to the table, right? That's what they want to discuss. And by the end of every episode, what you'll find is that what they've asked for at the beginning of the episode comes to fruition one way or another. It may not be the answer that they're looking for, but they come to their conclusion at the end of every episode. And these are, I will make it clear, these are one-off episodes. These are one-off coaching sessions, right? This is what it looks like to have a coaching conversation, at least with me, right? One time. But it's incredible because I've had people come on to talk about money mindset. You know, they, they self-proclaimed big socialists, right? But of course, they'll have a difficulty with earning money doing something they love. So we have a conversation about that. I had a guy who wanted to come on and develop a more positive mindset because he was struggling with mental health issues and he just wanted to find some tools to be able to get there. Recently, I had a guy who wanted to understand how to be a better father because he found there was a lot of fuzz in his head about being a father. Uh, A guy who wanted to understand why he got angry and frustrated when clients would say yes, yes, yes to him until the day before and then say no. And he got frustrated, even though he knows he doesn't need to get frustrated and he understands why he doesn't need to get frustrated. And he actually is very successful, but he was frustrated and he wanted to figure out why. So I had that conversation with him. But all of these people, I come on and I, I, I screen them to ensure that I'm empowering someone who has the capability to bring that same level of empowerment to every person that's in front of them so that this empowerment literally is an exponential activity. I think you're doing some great things, man. So where can we find the Social Cohesion Podcast? Are you on um, any platform in particular? So so it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, literally just the Social Cohesion Podcast. Um, I mean, I I host it at Buzzsprout. So, I mean, if you want to go there, you can go there as well. Um, And yeah, that'll be where you can find it. Man, I I think that's great. And where uh, can we learn more about your offerings and sessions? So you can go to my website, which is nice and easy, www.daniel-holly.com. Just head over there. And that's double uh, H-O-L-L-E-Y, not Holly like the bush at Christmas time. Double L-E-Y. Yeah, daniel-holly.com. Just head over there. And actually, what's cool is you can go to that website. And if you're not ready to have a chat with me, that's absolutely fine. You'll find I have a downloadable form that you can start And it's very simple. It's very simple. But you can start that form as a form of your own kind of coaching process, if you like, where if you have like a little target you want to get, then you can download a form and work with it. You can fill it out, play with it as much as you like. Of course, if you get to any any point of difficulty or challenge, you can just get in touch with me. But that form is free for anyone to come and use if you want to have your own little diary of progression where you may be having a little bit more challenge than just getting it done. Right. So that's available there to download as well. You know, you're providing insight and resources, and um, mm. I, I will make sure we include a link to your offerings at our website, ericmedia.com. And listeners, check it out if you haven't already. The Social Cohesion Podcast available everywhere where you like to get your podcast. Mm. <laughs> Mr. Daniel Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. You're doing some great things. Come back and see us, okay? Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. It's been it's been a great conversation. And I will come back. I will. Yeah. <laughs> Thought, Thought session. session.
Thought Session. Session. Session.